Welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation, Volume 15. My name is Jackie Steele, Canadian political scientist living and teaching here in Japan and the CEO and founder of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. Enjoy is a Japan-based global-facing company working in English and Japanese to support leaders, leaders and corporations who really want to build out diversity, positive workplaces and corporate cultures. We believe and we know that diversity rocks innovation, but we're really interested in inclusive innovation that amplifies and supports equality and that powers our people systems for our personal well-being and also for the collective good for the long game of democracy. So this live stream that we host every week shines a spotlight on the beautiful diversity of Enjoy Thought Partners who are bringing change in their own ways, in their own industries, in their own sectors through inclusive, gender equal and diversity positive leadership and role modeling. The live stream is hosted each week for a session of thought partnering out loud with me. And we just show up as two human beings, uh, minus the business cards and all of the different senpai, kohai, hierarchies of age or gender or nationality. And we just want to show up to share our expertise, our worldviews, and relate to engage in lifelong learning with one another um, as a giving and a receiving. So my guest for today is a wonderful Enjoy Thought partner and friend, uh, Tiffany Rossdale. I met her several years back through an inspirational speaker series called Find Your Element that was at the time hosted and curated, curated by another friend, Aya McCrindle. Um, and over the last uh, three, four years, I've had so much joy getting to know and to collaborate with Tiffany. And so it is my distinct pleasure to welcome Tiffany to this edition, volume 15 of Diversity Rocks Innovation. Thank you for joining me, Tiffany. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be here on your new platform, empowering women and making a difference, but not just for women, but for everyone. And <laughs> exactly. I always love being with you as I always learn a lot from you. Well, likewise, and you know, I think this is really interesting because in some ways we started this conversation when you invited me to, to be on your podcast, which I love, and uh, it's called Breakfast with Tiffany. What an amazing and just a which is a wonderful, wonderful uh, name and theme for your podcast. And so it was the first time that I really, I guess, in some ways was removing just my political scientist hat for part of that talk. And, and really, we did a deep dive into some of the more personal things that how I think about my identity. And I thought, you know, that's really something I had never really done. I had never maybe been asked those questions. Um, and since you're working and interested in LGBTQ wellness, I thought, you know, I need to start sharing my diversity story. I mean, another shout out to Catherine O'Connell, actually, who really said to me, you know, I'd be interested in hearing your diversity story if you haven't shared it. And because I, I was observing, I hadn't really talked about it in terms of how it impacts my lived reality. So thank you for inviting me to that show and helping me sort of begin that process of, of sharing publicly about how my identities work out and conjugate. And then, you know, the live stream in some ways it's paid forward this inspiration around thought partnering out loud, but really a deep dive into the radical individuality of all my thought partners and how amazing they are and complex and, and the rich diversity of each of those individuals. Uh, so we can do a deep dive into, I guess, in Canada, what we would call an intersectional diverse, uh, inter intersectional approach to diversity. So I'm excited to share all the complexities uh, of, of this beautiful human being called Tiffany Rosdale, who I've had such a pleasure to get to know and I learn from constantly. So Tiffany, so we can share and help our 
our audience also, you know, share in the learning journey with us about your experiences. Would you be able to walk us through maybe um, beginning with, you know, who you are and what are the core parts of yourself and where did you, where did you, where were you born and raised and how has that impact who you are today? Thank you for that question, Jackie. So I am born and raised in the beautiful country of the Philippines and my parents were never married. They got separated when I was about six, seven years old. And I can still clearly remember when my father and mother were fighting as my mother was screaming out loud to my father and I was so innocent and naive and they didn't understand what was happening between them. So all I remember that I was crying, watching them fighting. And I also have two younger siblings. We were always close to each other as we, the three of us knew that there's no one else that will understand our pains and struggles. So right before my mother left for Japan, she left us to our grandparents. And there were a few of my cousins living in with them and my relatives were always around. So my grandparents' house was kind of like a compound where all family lives together and right next to each other. And I think most families are like that, especially in the province areas of the Philippines before we moved to Manila. So, so really a living... multi-generational, multi-multi-generational, but extended relatives and families all sort of living together, which is even even more, I guess, multifamily than, than the Japanese sort of multi-generational approach of a household, given that also your aunts and uncles and your cousins were also nearby. It's interesting. Yes, that is so true. And so when my mom left, we were we were taking care of my grandparents and it didn't last for a long time. Um, I was very young and I knew I, I knew way back then that I was different, that I was unique. And uh, one one story that I would love to share is when I was about seven or eight years, six, seven, six, seven, eight years old and my um my cousin was playing this music of Madonna, like a virgin. And I love that song. And I've always wanted to dance. I love dancing ever since I was a kid. And then my my grandpa saw me performing and I have all this, um, I grab all that towels that I have. I, I wore it as a wig and then someone like put him as like a dress. And he, when he found me, he was so mad. He was so angry and he, literally just whipped me and uh, punished me and put me in in um in a room and let me kneel for an hour with the salt on the floor while I was kneeling. So that was one of the most unforgettable moments that I had that I thought that being me different wasn't accepted at all. And and I mean we know that a lot of kids like to play dress up and dance around and and engage in that and certainly I guess how we send those messages so early on to children about what you're allowed to be or not be because of, you know, the the body that you were born into and that, you know, masculinity is supposed to play out one way and femininity is supposed to be another way. And you're sort of early on scolded, reprimanded or punished, even as your experience suggests that you were punished for wanting to get up and dance like a child and dress up and and experiment with, you know, all of the different facets of what I guess humanity entails. You didn't know, I mean, it's not like you were um, 
you know, having some agenda. It was just children, they, they do those things, they explore, and that's what they're supposed to be doing at that age, obviously, to, to figure out and to have fun, frankly. I mean, you don't ever think it. You're just wanting to dance and dress up like Madonna, right? Like, <laughs> she's a rock star. Who wouldn't want to, right? So I know you mentioned to me that your grandparents were very strict and very kind of old school in their attitudes and I suppose very religious as well. Um, so did that have some kind of an impact on their finding this behavior and wanting to punish you right away for being, for expressing things that maybe they thought you should not be expressing? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because um, Philippines is a very Catholic country. And I think my grandpa and my grandma was raised back when during the World War. So they're very strict. I didn't know this. I, I just found out about all this later in life. And um and I thought that's the only way they knew how to raise kids. And I thought that maybe that's how also my parents, my mom and my mom's siblings were got raised through the way they were doing that. So, yeah. And I mean, you mentioned um, that your mom had left for Japan to, to, I think, work and your dad was not who you were living with at the time. Can you give us some context on why it was that you were, that you were, you know, having to stay with your grandparents and I guess aunts and uncles to be raised as opposed to with your father? I realize you mentioned they separated, but is there and how did how did that play out? So my mom and that my mom and my dad when they got se separated, um, obviously my mom took us from my dad because my dad couldn't raise us up because my dad doesn't have didn't have the financial stability. His his uh, job was always been a security guard, and obviously he couldn't raise us. So and th there's three of us, right? So uh, my mom took took care of us, but obviously when my mom leaving for Japan, they couldn't take care of us. So she couldn't take care of us. So she asked my grandparents to take care of us on the, in the beginning. And, and um, she was going to work in Japan to support the family and send money home to you and the grandparents yes. to support you. Yes. Yes. That was, that was, she, she was doing for the whole period. So, so I didn't actually have the opportunity to be with my mom, live with my mom and having her on my side, maybe when I was really, really young, like four or five until four or five, but I'm still innocent. I don't remember everything about it. So. Right. And I suppose that's also the case for your younger siblings. I mean, you were six and they were sort of four and three at the time when she was moving to Japan to have a job that could provide for you. Yes. There were, uh, there were two years younger than my, my younger sister is two years younger than me. And my other younger brother is four years younger than me. So they're really right. young when, yeah. Right. When, when they mom were basically no longer were living with either parent. And then all of a yeah. sudden, all three of you are living with grandparents and extended family. And you, you described how that was not easy. And that uh, in some ways, after staying with your grandparents, you also changed to be living with different uh, aunts and uncles. Was it partly because your grandparents had trouble raising you because it, it was too strict an environment or, or they felt they couldn't handle the three young children? It's still a lot of children to be grandparents and having three very young children. So we end uh, during my during staying with my grandparents, we ended up like obviously not couldn't stay long. I was we were crying a lot. We were telling my other our other relatives about what's going on because we couldn't speak to our mom. We couldn't tell our mom what's going on with our situation. So, and then eventually she would get that from my 
my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, and she would come back to get us. And then she would find another place for us to be, you know, to be taken care of. So my mom has a big family. They're probably seven siblings. So each and every one of them, like every year we get transferred to different relatives and every uh, different parts of um, school. I mean, I mean, like school, like we go to different school, we go to different area, we live in different areas, we, we live with different people. So every year was so different the whole entire time during my early young age. And I guess for the benefit of some of our listeners who are, are joining and who may not be connecting the dots on things, um, if we circle back to this very important moment in your early childhood, you're a six-year-old, and at the time, you're a six-year-old little boy. Yes. And your yes. grandparent, your grandfather, is very angry to see you dressed up and dancing around like Madonna. And given his upbringing and his values, decides to punish you by putting you in another room to kneel in salt because it eats away at the skin as a punishment re reminder um, for the hour that you have to stay there and kneel and, and, and be punished. I mean, these, these moments that mark our identities, right, and our, our sense of what we can be or what we are not allowed to be. I know that you were moving around from household to different aunts and uncles who were doing their best, I guess, to shoulder the responsibility of the three children for your mom and dad with your mom sending money home to support and give, you know, give support financially to them to support you. But you also mentioned there wasn't a sense of, I guess, psychological safety in those, in those homes that you didn't feel like you had parents that you really could talk to about what you were going through at the time and the questionings that you were having about who you were. Um, can you share a little bit about that and then how ultimately the next, I guess, from six to 16, when you finally ended up living with your dad, how did that, how did that play out and how did you manage to find when did you find support to be able to talk about what you were experiencing? So um, my mother, so the reason why the, my, uh, my, the other relatives wants to take care of us is because they knew that they're going to be, their financial stability uh, is going to be taken care of by my mom as well, right? So my mother sends money to anyone who takes care of me and my siblings. And what happens though, not sure what is the reason, but they always treat us not nice at all. We were, we were bullied and was treated like house helpers most of the time. So my mother will put us to private schools, but the lifestyle we had was not matched to the schools that we we went. And imagine that all the kids were fancy and they're in school, their their school stuff, their lunches, boxes, and you know, and all that, right? And while having me like the cheap, you know, the cheap stuff, so snacks or foods that I have because they don't want to spend a lot of money for that. While knowing that as well that my mother's sending enough money for me and my siblings for the expenses and the schools. So they never really spend it us to give it to us. So I think it's because they always also they always warn us as you know scare us to not say anything to my mom about the situation or we will get punished. So they will always threaten me and my siblings. So nothing we could do. And the only way I knew was to tell my father. So when he so my what my dad do is he would visit sometimes every now and then and he would you know like he would talk to us and then he would take me out and that's the only time that i can talk to him and tell him everything and i was always crying and telling him that i couldn't we couldn't live with them anymore i i want we want we want to be out 
we want to be with you. But obviously, with his um, with his situation as a as a security guard not be able to you know like take care of us, he would just always tell me that just wait, just wait, and 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 he was he's been saying that to me every time, and I was just like. I can't wait. We can't wait anymore because we we want you know we we couldn't we couldn't handle all this thing going on, and finally like I think after doing so many times that I escaped and then trying to find him because he would give me his address and I would look for him. Imagine at a very young age, I was I was still in grade school. And I was escape. I was escape from my relatives' houses and then I would just go by myself, ride all this you know like public jeepneys and go just to find my dad. And to reach him, and then tell him that I don't want to go back, and then just get my get my other siblings, and we just want to be with you. So it came to the point that also my mom got very tired about we were doing this every time too, because she would always come back from Japan after a year, and then not even a year sometimes, and then she would say she would say that well, if you want to live with your dad, that's fine, but I'm not gonna support you financially, whatever. So live with him, do whatever you want, but. No support from me, and that's what happened. So my my dad took care of us for during my um I think I was already in high school when that happened. I was in a public school. I didn't mind at all. We were living in a poor area in the in Manila. I didn't mind at all too because for me and my siblings, we had the freedom to do whatever we want. We didn't have that freedom, and we have we also have the love from from my dad, which is we didn't have the love all the time. When we were at my, you know, my relatives, and my mom was wasn't around as well. So yeah. Were you, I guess, in in a position as the eldest, you know, needing to also look after therefore your younger siblings when you were living with your your dad and they're in public school and you're you're in a, a sector of of Manila that maybe is less safe. So did you then have a lot more responsibility to take on? Yes, I was. I was trying to, but at the same time, I was working on my gender identity because I couldn't really show it. Even we live with my with my dad, which is he's very understanding. I love my dad so much, but he he would not approve of my gender identity. He knew the fact that I was different, that I was acting different, that I was a norm. I wasn't a normal boy. So he 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 didn't he didn't even have we didn't even have a discussion about it. So I was busy taking care of myself. Figuring out my own gender identity, so I couldn't really hundred percent take care of my siblings. Although, like I'm the eldest, so I have to be with them when my dad's out, like working, doing his duties as a security guard. So I have to be with my siblings, right? So sometimes I would, I remember, like I would cook like really simple stuffs, or he, my dad would cook like stuffs, and he would just leave it for us, and then you know I'll just reheat it and all that, you know, at a very young age. So I was doing that, yeah. And I mean, I'm. I know you you mentioned that when you were about 16 and you're in high school, you finally met some people who seemed more like you and who perhaps understood uh, your gender identity and what you were going through. And this was in some ways through this love of dance again. And uh, can you talk to me about the, the local cultural festivals that you and your, I guess, dance team or dance troupe uh, friends uh, built. So yeah, I was so lucky and blessed to have found friends at school when I was in high school. And some of them are around my age and some were a little bit older and they were all basically like me. We don't act and play like the boys and we all love dancing. So it's like a group of us. We go to the parks and we do like public parks. We do um, rehearsing 
the the, the leader of that group, he was he would he would just say let's do this and let's let's do a choreography and then let's let's join contest. And I loved it because I can you know express myself more. And this was an es- escape place for me and a safe place for me when I thought I can be who I am, the real me. And they will not judge me or hurt me. They were all accepting and I do the same for them. So, and now there were, I mean, ever since they were really my closest friends who I can trust. So we would go to contests, I, I, I guess we could call it Matsuri, like a festival, every town. We would join each contest for a dance troupe because in the Philippines, It's either dance contest, singing contest, which is also popular, and also the beauty contest, which is the Miss Gay beauty contest. And I would see these beautiful women, uh, trans women, joining the contest, and that's how I was so fascinated. I'm like, wow, like this beautiful woman, like, and I thought, I think I want to be like them. So that's how it probably all started to figure out my real gender identity. I, I think it's so fascinating that there's this very strict Catholic cultural identity in the Philippines and the laws and the gender norms. And yet at the local levels, you're rolling out what it's called the Miss Gay contest. And, and you're literally having at these festivals, the Miss Gay contest, where we have trans women who are performing with dance troops and other things. And it's, you mentioned it's a, it's a festival that families go to, kids enjoy, everyone participates in. Such a contradiction that you would have this in such a Catholic strict country. Like what explains this fascinating grassroots phenomenon? Is it in all parts of, of the Philippines or is it really specific to Manila? It's actually all parts of the Philippines because what what they do, even even the these trans women that are joining the contest, they would even join contests from like way like they would travel. It became some some of them it became like a business for them, like a career for them to join the contest because of course they would earn money if they win it, right? So it's not just the Manila, but it's everywhere. So once they have that type of, I mean, once they have the festivals like which happens to be like once a year right so they would the first thing that most of the organizers i think would do is to put on a miss gay beauty contest which was you know odd right because it's a very catholic country but at the same time they're okay with it right so and i mean you're at this point exploring and shifting your identity you sort of at six You, I remember you mentioning that you asked your mom to, to buy you a Barbie doll and she flat out, you know, said absolutely not, that that's not sort of appropriate for a boy. And you're then, you know, also getting in trouble from your grandpa for wanting to do dance and dress up like Madonna and enjoy that. Um, and then later you are sort of identifying that maybe you're not completely like the other boys and you're look, looking for a peer group, right? And who you finally do then find when you're in high school. But you mentioned that at that point, because of, um, in some ways, because yourself and your your dance troupe, uh, the members of, of that, the dance team, those boys are dressing in certain ways that are less masculine and they're performing and dancing. Um, and so you would be bullied or um, called names uh, because people assumed that you were gay um, and you'd be called, you know, names as a gay boy, right? So then there's this shift in the identity of, well, are, are you gay? Am I gay? I mean, you know, and yet you mentioned to me, actually, it didn't make sense really for them to, 
to call you gay because that's not how you identified really in terms of it's not about your sexual orientation, right? It was about your gender identity, not, you know, sexual orientation. Can you speak a little bit about the process of, I mean, the other boys and who you were friends with, for some of them, they maybe, they maybe were gay, right? Um, and in some ways identified with that identity, even if it wasn't something that was accurate for yourself. Yeah, it's very fascinating because I was the, amongst the group that I that I that I had like this this closest friends of mine when back in high school among all of them I'm the only one who became a trans woman so all of them were just gay and one one got married actually so I, I'm not sure if he was confused about his gender identity but he he got married and he has a he has a child so I was the only one who completely transitioned myself into into who I am now after I left Philippines to come here in Japan is where the transition happened. And it's funny because when I, after I came, came here in Japan and I came back to the Philippines and meet them, they were all surprised. They would never, they never really expected that I'm going to fully, completely change everything. And when you arrived, uh, I mean, you were, you were invited by your mom and her then husbands, your stepdad to come and live with them in Japan and be supported um, to choose other options and explore other pathways for yourself. So although you had been pursuing um, a programming degree, a uh, computer programming degree in college in the Philippines, you actually made the choice to come across to Japan, live finally, I guess, for the first time in many years with your mother and stepdad. And experience, I guess, your first work opportunity in a factory that didn't really go very well and wasn't your highest passion, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and so from there, you mentioned that you were looking for more freedom to explore who you really were and, and had conversations eventually with your mother on that point. What was that like? So when it came here in Japan, I knew that I have to live with my mom and my stepdad. And I never had the opportunity, as I said earlier, I never had the opportunity to live with my mom. So I, I was actually feeling not not sure about if I should go or not, because I don't feel, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm going to feel safe, if she's going to fully accept me and she would totally understand me. But then uh, she told me that the only the only um, way that I can probably because I she know that I want to go to America and she she told me that if you want to go to America too if, if you come here in Japan and then you have the you have the you know like you have you have approved that you you've lived here in Japan it's easier for you to go to to America instead from coming from the Philippines to America because that's going to be like so difficult and I thought then maybe I should try so when I came in Japan I lived with them and obviously I didn't last for a, I didn't even last for a year to stay with them because. I expected that I'm not going to get along with my mom and my dad, my stepdad was very, he was very nice. He was, he was very um, understanding, but he didn't know about me, about my, my gender identity. And when I was work, while I was working the factory that you, you mentioned, I told my mom, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. I want to do something different. And I asked her if she can take me to these places where all these trans women are working, all these Filipina trans women are working. And most of them, they work in a kind of a cabaret show, show club uh, type of places. And in the beginning, she was, she was not, she, she didn't want to. And later, like she found out I was really stressing out about my situation in the factory. And then she told me, let's go, let's go um, watch the show. And I felt so happy that that moment because that moment was the moment that i thought that she was really fully accepting me as who i am and 
when we went there, when I saw like when I entered that cabaret place, it's like going to a Disneyland and I saw all the girls and I was like, wow, I want to be here. <laughs> I want to be part of this. <laughs> and I was just blown away with all these beautiful women. And they're all like, oh, if you want to be if you want to be one like us, you should you should start doing everything, you know, like start transitioning soon and they're giving my mom all these advices and my mom would be just like listening because obviously my mom you know didn't know like really how to raise me and she doesn't have a knowledge about what what a trans woman should live or like how it's it's her first time going to that place too so she was learning a lot and then she agreed to me to um to go to work in that type of place but she told me that i have to be separated from where they live because she doesn't want to let my stepdad know about 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 that situation so i i separated with them and then she told me that just whenever you come visit don't wear girly clothes just wear like you know like what you are now and not come visit us if you're gonna be like wearing makeup or whatever so that was the deal and i i said like yeah of course i'm not gonna Go visit and you know in makeups and all that, and that's and how it, my transition started. And it's and it's you know it's a it's a journey for you trying to get information and to find role models and to find women who are like you and who've been through it. And then how do you get there? How I mean, you, you mentioned you'd started actually getting access to some of the transitioning hormone pills in the Philippines, but it only stayed at that level, and you couldn't think about next steps and. Here in Japan, then you you can have these next conversations with women uh, who were who've been through it and who could mentor and give you that support on how do you how do you find doctors? And in Japan, of course, at this time, it's all underground. It's not regulated. It's not necessarily safe. Uh, there's no documentation of what these processes are, are happening underground. So it is these are big decisions, right? About risks that you would be taking for your physical and mental health. So to have other people who have been through it and can give you that support emotionally um, and to just where you feel seen, right? You feel seen for the first time in, in many ways uh, by people who really understand you. And I mean, at the same time, your mother, who is trying to walk this balanced juggling act of supporting you, but not knowing how to deal with it and share the information with your stepdad and being sort of trying to figure out what those boundaries are, but wanting to support, but also not able to support ultimately in who you are and asking you to, you know, camouflage yourself if you come visit and right and, and change the way you look when you come visit. So you mentioned the some of the advice you got um, around uh, the transitioning process um, and, and those real tough choices, right? The, the physical challenges and maybe walk us through, if you could, some of those key pieces of advice that you got about where is it safe to have these operations done and what were your choices? So back then, um, we just we just had all this information, all this information through people who actually did it so that's where where they share their stories about like how it happened how it did and here in japan there were this one um sensei there was one doctor who was doing this practice and like what you said it's not really um a hundred percent legal so they're doing under so it's really like underground <clears throat> but he was the only one who can do it so everyone goes to him it's either you go with him or you go to thailand which is obviously thailand has like so many options and um I tried to figure out everything like what to do. 
but before I did my fully transitioned, I did my breast implants, my facial surgeries and all that in the Philippines. But in the Philippines, it's also not 100%. Uh, there are not many um, doctors too. There's only one. And he's, he's in the hospital. He can sign, he can give you like certification and all that, that he, he was, he's going to do it to you if, if he's really do the breast implants and all that. So I did my, my first transition in the Philippines and my fully transitioned, I did it in Thailand because I thought Thailand was, had many options and I can be more safer. And I've, I have had a few friends, close friends who did it there too, that they really told me that, and they even showed me. So I... I, you know, I, I felt like, okay, then I think I can do it if, you know, if in that way. And also, of course, like I try, you also try to, back then we didn't have all this information online, but you, there's a few. So you, you, you kind of like search some stuff on online as well. And that's how it went through my transition. And it really is. I mean, for so many within the LGBTQ community, but also in other communities, immigrant communities, it is really sort of an underground space of mutual peer-to-peer -peer support and knowledge transfer that you get through your communities because there is marginalization around what you're experiencing because, um, you know, the services aren't necessarily developed in these countries that are working from, I guess, old-fashioned assumptions, right, about which bodies are normal and what needs do we fulfill with our public health system. Um, and so we don't have the full range of these, these supports. And I think, again, it's fascinating that in the Philippines, this doctor working within, again, this very Catholic religious country, and he's in a hospital, and yet he's managing to be subversive, I guess, by offering services and making sure he's giving all the legal certifications that prove the surgeries done, because you need proof of the surgeries for your end of things, right? For what you're going through for your bodily transformations. You needed to be on record publicly. And yet I imagine he's writing down completely other reasons as to why the surgery is being done, but it's not due to a gender identity issue. It's right. He's, he's managing to carve out these gray zones, um, which keeps it legal on paper, but not acknowledging the full extent of the reason for the surgeries. Right. And you mentioned that, of course, you need certificates to show um, right. And certainly you've talked to me and I think it's, again, so illuminating to think about the impacts for from an immigration perspective that you mentioned you needed to have records of the physical changes you were undergoing because you were updating then your residency photo in Japan. Right. And changing your residency photo. So although your residency card at the time, it was probably the foreign registration card, um, would need a photo and it would need to, it would, but it would be in some ways out of misalignment with the legal sex listed on your card. And you would need to have proof of these procedures that you'd had in the Philippines, if ever you were, you were asked. When, when do those, does that paperwork, when, when do you get asked for it? Who asks for that paperwork? Is it the immigration authorities at what moment do you find that that was sort of called into question for you so the moments that i always get asked is when i when i when i first traveled to america and in japan i don't i didn't really actually get a lot of questions but in america uh the immigration when you get in the immigration and then eventually they would see your photo and then sometimes they would notice your gender and of course my gender is still male and they would ask why is it male and then I'd be like, I'm a transgender. 
And back then I would say transsexual because there's no transgender word back then, right? I would say I'm a transsexual. And then they would be like, really? And then what they would do is they would take me to another room and have me there for an hour, like doing all these interviews, ask you so many questions. What am I going to do in America? Am I going to work in America? What am I there for? Who am I visiting? And even my phone, they would collect all this information and then data so that they can, they can if, you know, it's too private, right? And I'm just like, and what I did was, because it was those moments that I want to go to America and just like, you know, be, be, be fabulous. And I brought all my heels, my dresses and all that. So they would think that I would go there to work. <laughs> so, and so um, it happened not just one time, it happened several, quite several times. And they would always ask me about, about that because my photo and my gender is always not, not match and why. And, and yeah, and it, it's such a I mean, we often talk uh, in the context of the United States about the excessive racial profiling and, and also religious when it's, you know, when we were around uh, the events of 9-11 and, and the, the profiling, right, uh, of anyone perceived to be maybe Muslim. Um, but we often don't sort of always talk openly about the fact that, of course, um, you know, transgender uh, individuals are also being very much profiled. And I think it's so offensive, frankly, and astonishing that the Border Patrol immigration officers would right there publicly ask you to explain when you've got lines of people behind you and they're looking at your photo ID and looking at notice the sexes in their minds out of a, out of alignment as they think. And so they ask you right then and there, these questions, astonishing, such a violation of like such a private matter that the people behind you in line don't need to know about, right? And those questions are are supposed to be, you know, maintaining your, your privacy. But when there are marginalized identities, we often, the first thing we violate is we violate privacy, the right to privacy, right? By demanding quest answers to things that really don't have, people don't have a right to. And that's particularly the case, I think, for, for also for transgender people. And you mentioned that in Japan, you wouldn't get questions. And I'm, I find that interesting. So what was the reaction at the immigration counter in Japan? I don't know. Like for them, I think it's maybe, maybe they don't notice or because they never really asked me. They would just look at, look at my, my, my passport or whatever. And then just, they stamp me. They would never ask any. I only get question when I'm on the phone and, and, and for example, I'm, I'm giving informations that, uh, for example, my travel, uh, my uh, for example, travel agency. And then you say like, okay, here's my real name and my gender is M, right? And all that information. And they'll be like, in the beginning, like, like, is it you? Like on the phone? Like, is it the person on the phone right now? Is so the same individual I would be like, yes, I, yes, this is. <laughs> yes, it's me. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. That's the only thing that I get in Japan. Other than they're that, thinking, like, no. they're, th they're expecting a more male speaking personality and you're not sounding like a male a man on the phone to them i and think so, so. probably it's because the way i the way i spoke to them and yeah I, then that's how they ask yeah and i mean thinking forward um i know that you've mentioned uh because of your of course uh, passport and nationality as a filipino it is not ever legally possible for you in the Philippines to do a sex, a sex um, legal change of your sex in your actual legal documents in the Philippines. It's not something that is acknowledged or allowed or permitted. Whereas if you were to naturalize 
to be a Japanese national, that is actually something that is, is legally possible in Japan. Does that affect how you think about what, what you want to consider for your choices in the future? Yes, um, because um, if I'm going to do change my, my gender identity, then I have to be a Japanese citizen and I have to um, surrender my Filipino passport. And that's how I've been thinking about, like, does it really have to be like that and and continue on? And and of course, if I change my gender identity, like to what I've always wanted, I'll be happy. But at the same time, I will lose my my origin, my, you know, being a Filipino because I still love my country. I love my country. I love Japan, too. But not having Philippine or, you know, like, yeah, it just makes me think. But. I want to do that process if that's the only choice. And I think you, I mean, you put your finger on the really challenging piece. I mean, this is where, you know, the concept of intersectional diversity is, I think, really helpful in terms of weeding through these complexities. Our identities are having multiple intersections of gender, of race, of the sex that we were legally labeled as at birth, um, you know, of our religion, of our culture and languages we speak, of, you know, our gender identity, of our sexual orientation, of whether we have abilities or disabilities, learning disabilities, different facets. They're all combining to create this unique individuality. And it is frustrating, and I certainly experience this frustration too, that why should you, why should you have to give up part of your Filipino identity on that side of things and your cultural heritage uh, and sense of belonging to that country, your home country, to be able to access and fully, uh, you know, have your gendered identity be legally acknowledged where you're living and are an immigrant of, you know, 20, 30, 30 or more years um, here in Japan, because there's only one one possible nationality that you can hold under the Japanese law. Um, and, and I know there's many people who manage to, in some ways, informally hold a second uh, nationality off the record, and the Japanese authorities don't look into it. And so it's just kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy. But I think certainly for certain countries, um, they do look into it and make sure that you do surrender the other passport. And so it's unfortunate that we wouldn't be able to hold these complexities together to be not punished in that way. And, and I think for many immigrants in Japan who love their birth countries, feel, feel a sense of connection to their birth countries, have children who they want to have a connection to those countries as well as a part of their children's heritage, but also have been in Japan, uh, you know, for many, many years. And, and certainly myself, I count myself in that dynamic, would love Japan, would love to formally have the right to vote and participate in Japanese elections and to think about and really be seen as a as a as a full member of this political community and of this nation even if you know we also were born elsewhere and have a passport from that from that home country it would be lovely to be able to accommodate that complexity of the nuances because we all are hybrid i mean so we're always hybrid in many ways in our identities so yeah i would hope for you that you know i guess the only solution is that that maybe japan shifts to dual nationality at some point and then allows you to be having your your filipino passport but to naturalize here in japan and to to do the legal change so you can can change and have it recognized as as female sex on your on your legal documents it's um you know the law reform is challenging in japan and i think the reiwa era and political leaders here are really struggling to find what is their what what do they want as their future definition of Japanese-ness and who's included in that and how do they include longtime immigrants who aren't just working here temporarily and then go home like we're 
we're here and we've been here. And I think there's been so much immigration to Japan informally through the back door, but it's not legally formally recognized fully yet. And it's a challenge. It's, it's certainly a challenge. If you had sort of a, a lesson or learning to share with our audience and our listeners about all of your journey as an individual, uh, and you can focus on the pieces that matter that you want to talk about uh, today and or, you know, your message in terms of hopes for Japan, what kind of, what, what are you focusing on and what would be the one thing you'd love to have listeners take away and think a little bit more about? Thank you for that question, Jackie. So here's, I think, my final message to everyone watching this right now. Me, transgender like me, are just normal people who also wants to live our lives like many of you, to have a safe space. And I think I'm lucky enough to live in this amazing country where I don't have to think about my safety. And I think Japan is amazing with that, right? And all that individual need is love and support and care. And just like me, also my fellow brothers in the LGBTQIA plus community, everyone needs it too. And I want to leave with one last thought of, we can come to love and respect and embrace our own uniqueness. Whatever that is, then just maybe we can come to respect the uniqueness of everyone around us. I am so grateful that we are now living in an era where we can speak and discuss all these important issues. And my hope is I can see and experience one day that being a transgender is just a normal thing and not an issue anymore. I would love to see that in our generation. I want to represent my community and my purpose is to be a voice for my community. And I also want to educate people about my community, the tribe. Um, and lastly, happy Pride Month to all you, my brothers and sisters in the community, and to you, Jackie, too. And Jackie, by the way, um, I just want to say that I'm really grateful for this, for you and your team for making this platform truly inspiring, thought-provoking conversations. And I always learn a lot from you. And I applaud you for doing such amazing initiatives, empowering us all. So really, thank you so much. Arigatou gozaimasu. I mean, I think uh, that's such an inspiring offering to the community. I love, you know, that we can first start really accepting our own uniqueness, our unique individuality. And if we can't do that, then how do we manage to accept it in others and find a space of generosity there? And I think absolutely, uh, when I think about and I talk about radical individuality, I think that's exactly what I'm I'm trying to, to shine a light on and people like you with your leadership. I know you've had such an incredible journey of really only starting to talk about these issues openly in the last three, four years. And um, now you're out with your own podcast and, and supporting, you know, LGBTQ wellness and, and a coach and offering coaching services. and um, I think really such an incredible role model here in Japan for these challenges and also being able to share from the perspective of what you've experienced as an immigrant to Japan, also living through all of that on top of uh, the gendered identities um, that, you know, and, and a very, very challenging uh, home environment that you also managed to navigate through. Um, I am so inspired and in awe of what you have managed to find resilience and to, to work through to work through and to to build and, and for yourself and to not, I guess, be downtrodden by all of the things you faced. You've just managed to find ways to overcome and find your, your inner power. And that's so amazing 
to see Tiffany and so inspiring. So thank you for uh, a lovely sharing of all of your complex realities um, and individualities and uniqueness. So much for the listeners to delve into, and I hope they'll listen to it more than once so that they can really grapple with all of that complexity. So thank you, Tiffany. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. And I didn't say again back at you for happy pride as a queer identifying <laughs> and certainly a complex person on that front too that people often don't understand. <laughs> um, certainly, I'm very, very grateful for my tribe uh, who's been with me in Canada and also in Japan understanding these realities and complexities. So definitely happy pride month. Next week, tune in. We will be featuring um, Darren Manavni, who is a very good friend and a colleague through the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and he is a global communication and creativity consultant um, and has some inspiring learnings to share about global communications and how to make it work within a Japanese corporation uh, amidst all of that multinational identities and different uh, language communities within that same space. So tune in. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play, where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.